It's a funny place to be, stuck in a seemingly mundane world with an inner knowing that the universe is so much more than our mortal minds can comprehend. Yet we all have the capacity to know peace and our oneness with the wholeness of life. And through these interviews, discussions, and reflections, it is my intention to share this possibility. I'm Ryan Kurzak, and this is the Kriya Yoga Podcast. So we're going to just take a moment and explore this together. In order to do so, if you wouldn't mind, um, let's just do a short meditative session. So closing your eyes, bringing your awareness to your body. Feel the breath in the body. Feel the rise and the fall of the breath naturally within the body. And as you become aware of the breath within the body, become aware of what your body feels like. And this isn't to, you know, judging anything. If it feels bad, well, it just feels bad. If it feels great, it feels great. If it feels neutral, fine. You're just observing as though you were looking at something on a slide of a microscope. You don't, it doesn't really matter what's on the microscope, whether it's bacteria or whether it's uh, diamond dust. You're just, what's there? So feel the body as you breathe. Notice the sensations within the body and start with your feet. Feel your feet and your toes. Maybe they're in your slippers or they're cold. Just feel your feet and your toes. Breathe. And bring your awareness up to your ankles and your knees, your calves, letting the breath be the center, feeling the warmth or the sensations on your skin. And bring your attention up to your knees, your upper legs, your hips, lower abdomen, lower back. Feel yourself in your sitting position, gravity pulling you downward. Letting the breath be the anchor. And pull your attention up into your upper abdomen, your chest, your shoulders, your shoulder blades, your arms. Feel the breath as it moves in and out, expanding your chest, massaging your internal organs. And as you do so, as you feel this, know that you are just experiencing the current state of consciousness as it is right now.
Let your awareness flow down into your forearms, into your hands, up into your neck, into your face, into your head, your ears, your scalp. Feel the breath as it flows into your nostrils and flows back out, observing all these sensations, the current state of your consciousness. Feel the body, the warmth of your body, the sensations on your skin, the rise and fall of the breath. Observe. And now bring your awareness to your heart. Feel the heart. And ask yourself this question. What is love? Ask that question. What is love? What is love? Breathe. Now, in that state, in that semi-meditative state, I want you to write for me in the chat box a one or two sentence, not more than that, definition of what love is. So when you contemplate what is love, what arose, what came to mind, so type that into the chat box, what is love? And the reason I'm having you do this is because the the first question that was sent to me today, as well as the one that was emailed to me recently, uh, both had to do with this idea of love. And this must be a theme that I'm to be considering because as many of you might know, last week uh, I was asked by a unity church to give a talk, a discussion uh, on love for their Sunday sermon. And I happily agreed uh, Thursday. And then the more I thought about it, the more I thought to myself, hmm, I really have no idea what I'm going to say to this. Uh, And I believe it was probably the worst talk I've ever given. (laughs) So we're doing this because I want to know what your thoughts of love are. 
And the other reason I'm doing this is because the woman who wrote to me, she, I don't believe she's able to be here today. And uh, I just got the question this morning right before I meditated. So I sent her a follow-up question that basically said, okay, well, I need you to define for me what you mean by love. So this is one way we're going to do this. Give me one moment. So let's take a moment to list what was written here so far. So love is lack of judgment. Life is love. Acceptance is love. Life and compassion. A deep reverence of something. I am love. It's pretty good. Uh, infinity. Recognizing our oneness. Uh, everything in sight of me. Accepting joy and suffering with grace. No response. <laughs> it's probably the best one, right? Um, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is a powerful carrying resonance within oneself for another. Well-being of the one whom you love unconditionally. Love is the truest nature of the divine consciousness. It is the essence of our authentic self. Love is opening to the present moment, accepting, appreciating all that, and the cat. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I was thinking about this morning as I was meditating, uh, because as I recognized that the majority of my experiences with meditation uh, for these last two decades have typically always involved uh, a couch and a cat. <laughs> So now back to the questions that prompted this. Let me find it here. <clears throat> All right. I have been studying the yamas and niyamas with your book and lectures. It seems strange to me that love is not a yama. Love is not even one of the eight limbs of yoga. How does the concept of love, specifically universal love, fit into this spiritual path? So I asked what, how they were defining love, because that's we have to start there. And as you've seen, all the people who have posted, while there's been kind of a theme, um, some people think love is just simple acceptance. Um, some people say that life is love, or compassion is love, or having a deep reverence for something is love. And uh, one of the things that came to me as I was contemplating this is that uh, love is not an action. Um, love is a, a state of being, a natural state. And the yamas and niyamas are things to do uh, or refrain from. And it occurred to me as well that within the yamas and niyamas that, um, again, depending on how you're approaching it, for example, being true to someone being established in truthfulness, to me, that's love. Being established in a state of contentment, well, that's an embodiment of love. Um, not, not living through attachment is love. Because if you're attached to someone or something, you're usually acting uh, out of selfish motives, even in the best circumstances. But if you're acting without attachment, then love can be or be experienced freely and clearly. And why is there no um, talk of love in the Yoga Sutras? Well, there's also really no talk of God in the Yoga Sutras. Uh, there is a reference to the term Ishvara, and many people interpret that as God. But 
on one hand, it means the Lord of the universe, which that's probably where they get the idea of God from. But on the other hand, it's more like a principle or a power or an intelligence, um, which allows all of this to exist. So it's, it's, that could be defined as God, but you see, we're just taking things and, and labeling them God. Um, so there's not even a, an emphasis towards the idea of God in the yoga sutras. And the reason this is the case is because if you practice yoga, um, you will realize that as someone said here, I am love because again, you can't do it. You can't make it happen. Um, you can simply be it really. And the way you be it ultimately is by being still. And so really what's happening with yoga practice is we know from the beginning of the yoga sutras, the statement that um, yoga is the cessation or ending of the fluctuations of the changes in consciousness. Yoga is abiding as the self. Otherwise you are conforming yourself to definitions, to things. And so the whole purpose of uh, yoga practice is to be quiet to experience what is, which that experience of isness or pure existence, when you can do it, that's probably what most people are referring to uh, an ultimate sense of love. But again, we have to be careful with this discussion uh, because again, everyone has a different uh, idea. Uh, to a, a teenager, love is being able to run into the arms of your uh, uh, boyfriend or girlfriend whom you're just powered by hormones and maybe you've had past traumas and so you're trying to find satisfaction or comfort through another person uh, so love there you could call it love sure but what is it really it's the experience of uh, trying to find solace and feel safe and sane due to one's past traumas or due to surges of hormones within the body. So would we call that love, really, if we think about it? Well, you might if you're a teenager. Uh, and then when you grow up and you have a healthy relationship and you recognize that love is being there for someone no matter what, that love is being truthful, that love is um, letting someone know that as far as you can, as far as it is within your capacity, you will be there for them to assist them, to just be beside them. And that brings in a level of sacrifice and there is no attachment. You make sacrifices and they're not even sacrifices because you just do them because they are the appropriate thing to do. You don't think about them as sacrifices. When you have a teenager mentality, you think, okay, well, I'll do this for this person, but I really don't want to. Um, but when you become an adult and you love from an adult perspective, um, you don't think, gee, I'd really like to spend time with my friends, but I'm going to do this just to make them happy. You know, no, this is the relationship I'm in and I committed to them. So I'm going to be here. There's a sense of devotion in that way. Um, so you see, there are different stages of this idea of love and we have to be cautious from a spiritual perspective for a couple reasons. Number one, we have to be cautious because many people who are on the spiritual path, um, they're not that mature yet. And so you have to talk a certain way with them. Uh, an example, I remember Mr. Davis telling a story 
where um, when he and the senior minister of the Phoenix Center, uh, they were invented the um, Phoenix Self-Realization Fellowship Center. Yogananda had sent Mr. Davis to Phoenix to uh, help out with that small center there at the time. There was a woman who attended the, the, the services and she was an older one, much older than Mr. Davis. And she invited Mr. Davis and the senior minister at the time um, to her home, I think for a meal. And they agreed. So they went and they had a meal with this woman and the woman wanted to show Mr. Davis and Herbert, I believe his name was Herbert Freed, uh, the artwork that she did. And she showed her the artwork or she showed them the artwork. And finally she found uh, a picture and it was this, uh, he's, Mr. Davis described as this cosmic looking man with the cosmos behind him and this long white flowing beard and the wisdom of the ages in his eyes. And uh, she said, this is my master. He teaches me from the inner realms. And Mr. Davis knew that Yogananda wasn't really into that. Uh, so he looked at Herbert Freed, who was the senior minister, and Herbert just shook his head like, nope, just be quiet, don't say anything. And then um, 60 days later or so, because Mr. Davis was supposed to go visit uh, Yogananda every 60 days, that's what Yogananda had told him to do. Yogananda said, I heard about your your dinner time visit from Herbert. And he said, you did, you did a fine job. He said, she has an idea and this idea sustains her on the path. He says, it's good you didn't say anything because if you had said something such as no, you know, that isn't right, master, meaning Paramahansa Yogananda doesn't think that way or doesn't support that kind of approach. Um, Yogananda said, you would have chased her away because she would have had hurt feelings and she would have thought, well, I need to go somewhere else then. He said, you would have chased her away and she wouldn't have been able to stay long enough to mature, to get what needed to be shared through Kriya Yoga practice and mature through that process to, to outgrow that. Uh, so anyway, back to our initial discussion here. Um, the reason it's hard to talk about these things is because some people still have uh, a adolescent view of things when it comes to spirituality and they have to believe or feel that when they have these surges of ecstasy or really what's happening is their body is just getting healthier. Their nervous systems gain balance, more balance and just feels better. And when you, when you don't feel well, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. If you've ever been under a lot of stress for um, an extended period of time, or um, you've had a, a hardship um, or you've been ill. And then all of a sudden, that hardship is taken away or you wake up one morning feeling better or the stress is, is gone. You feel amazing. Now, is that because anything new came into your life? No, it's because the thing that was causing the difficulty was removed. So oftentimes when people experience these surges of joy or bliss or what they mistakenly call Ananda, um, it's just because their body is getting better and they're, they're, they're better able to manage their life. These things are being removed. And so that innate sense of clarity and peace is revealed. Um, so we have, we have to keep that in mind. This is kind of how the process works. And when we read a lot of spiritual literature, there is a pretty profound focus on not being attached to people, places, or things. 
not being attached to anything really. So many times people think of love as uh, an attachment to, and when I was contemplating this myself, I looked up the definition as it is um, according to the dictionary. And it says an intense feeling of deep affection, an intense feeling of deep affection, a great interest and pleasure in something. That's the noun, um, the verb to feel deep affection for, to like or enjoy very much. And if we go by the verbs, well, we know that uh, yoga itself is not really supportive of that because part of yoga is letting go of your likes and your dislikes, your attachments and your aversions. So when we're, when we're speaking about this to a certain state of person, we have to be careful because if we just come right out and say, yeah, love is non-attachment, love is truthfulness, all these really intense, what they might feel to be uh, strict disciplines, um, they might say, well, I don't want that. So they're going to go run off and find someone who's going to chant them into a state of uh, emotional high and think that's it. Um, so we have to be cautious. Positive feelings are good. Positive feelings are good. For example, when you do devotional chanting, um, when you do any kind of chanting, when you chant Om or when you hum, I have heard and I have read uh, that our nasal passages, uh, they produce nitric oxide. And I don't know how many of you know about this, but nitric oxide is, uh, some people can take a form of it as a supplement, which re removes inflammation in the body or, or helps athletes re recover quicker. So anyway, when you chant or hum or do OM for long periods of time and direct your, your vibration and feeling up into the spiritual eye center, which is what, right in the center of your sinuses, um, your body produces more nitric oxide. Um, when you do deep breathing, you do deep breathing or uh, measured breathing. So it can be deep breathing or it can simply be measured breathing. And when you do alternate nostril breathing, what are you doing? Measured breathing. In for a bit, out for a bit. In for a bit, out for a bit. The same with Kriya Pranayama. You're, you're controlling your breathing. You're pulling the current up. Your breathing is controlled. You're letting it flow back down in a rhythmic pattern. Well, when you do that, you are um, stimulating. Um, I always get these two mixed up. They always seem opposite of what they should be. I think it's the sympathetic nerve or the parasympathetic nervous system. Um, it's the one that's rest and digest. You are moving into that state. And so what happens if your body is in a state of, of even mild stress, because many of us walk around with a state of mild stress, and we don't even really recognize it. Uh, but when you start to practice these meditation techniques and your nervous system becomes, okay, reset, well, of course you feel better because now you're moving from this low-grade stress, this low-grade anxiety, which many people carry around for one reason or another, or sometimes it's full-blown anxiety constantly. When you catch that moment of the nervous system flips the switch and you move into rest and digest, yes, positive hormones are released. You feel good. When you listen to music, you feel good. You start to train your body to get used to that feeling. But these are physical feelings. They are helpful for the health of the body, but they are physical feelings. But this is also why from a spiritual perspective, there is um, a discussion on um, not being attached to any kind of feeling, even positive, good feelings. That doesn't mean you don't allow them 
because they are healthy for you. Um, but certain kinds of stress are also helpful for you too. Um, so what we see here is that the whole process of yoga, and I believe we've talked about this before in one of the other Q and A's, uh, is is removing is removing everything that is not your natural state. And if your natural state is peace and love, well, then once it's removed, nothing new has come forward. You have just peeled away that which was blocking your innate experience. Uh, Ramana Maharshi talks about this. He says, the self is your natural state. People talk about finding the self. I must get it. I must achieve it. And he says, no, no, there's nothing to achieve there. He says, just remove the obstacles to knowing what you are and it'll be there in the same way that as we've discussed, if you remove the things that are causing you stress and difficulty and anxiety, you naturally feel peace. Remember when you've gone to the beach or on vacation and you were able to put your cell phone aside or not worry about your reports. Why did you feel so good there? Because you removed those things which were causing you difficulty. Now, it is true that some people's systems have become so habituated to stress and anxiety and depression that there are actual chemical or physical reasons in the brain causing it. But that's also why we practice Kriya Yoga to refine the nervous system, to engage neuroplasticity, to balance out our hormones, to co correct those things. But again, what's happening there? You're just correcting things to their natural state. And then the sense of peace and clarity and love is there. It reveals itself. It is natural. It's what's always there. And this leads into the second question, uh, which is, was posted today. How is the Ananda state of bliss different from a powerful, happy, emotional state? Well, the Ananda state of bliss is not dependent on anything. As I mentioned, it's always there. It's, it's once you practice yoga, and as we know from studying the Yoga Sutras, again and again and again, what the Yoga Sutras say that Kriya Yoga does is it removes the afflictions or the obstacles read chapter one of the yoga sutras this comes up again and again why do we do the the yoga techniques why do we follow the yoga philosophy it keeps stating it removes the afflictions or the blockages it removes the afflictions or the blockages in chapter one of the yoga sutras why do we contemplate om or chant om well as it says in the yoga sutras because by contemplating om by chanting om it removes all obstacles all obstacles to progress. So we see here, all we're doing with yoga, all we're doing is simply removing the obstacles. Things will be well when the obstacles to their wellness are removed. Uh, one woman I saw recently, uh, she, she got a little creature or eggs of a little creature called a I think it's, it's either an axolotl or axolotl. Anyway, it's like a little um, newt or salamander type thing that's fully aquatic, has these little frilly gills. You've probably seen pictures of them. And they look kind of cute. Um, I've always wanted one. I always thought they were pretty neat. But um, they have to live in a certain environment. The, the water temperature has to be a certain level. <clears throat> it has to be colder, not warmer. Um, 
And that's a problem because when you live in certain climates, the ambient room temperature is going to be way above what their water needs to be. So I said to her, that's great. You got them. Um, how are you going to chill the water? Cause I've wondered that myself. Um, we just got a little discussion about it. And that's an example of for this creature to thrive and be happy and healthy and to fulfill its life. It has to have certain things. The obstacles to having that chilled water have to be removed. Uh, clean water, the right types of food. And if, if it has those obstacles removed, this creature will live a natural, healthy life. Just like we will know things uh, spiritually, if we follow the yamas and niyamas, if we practice the meditation techniques, if we live in, according, in accordance with the philosophy, we will naturally experience um, clarity of awareness. It's not normal for us in our current culture, which is why we feel like we have to work real hard at it. Um, but that's only because of where we are in our culture. Eventually, all these principles will become obvious and there will be more people who will just know this is how we manage stress. This is how we eat. This is why we need to exercise in a certain way. And the people that are not knowing that will be in the, the minority. <laughs> We've got a few years to go, but that's the way it, it works. So the Ananda state of bliss is freedom. It cannot be described. If someone tries to talk you into it, if they try to describe it to you, just don't listen because it, you, you can't convey it through words. It is complete freedom. And you can imagine what that is, which will help get you there. It'll help carry you along, carry your intention along. But you have to be open to um, recognizing your growth process. I Meaning you might think freedom is this, but as you mature, you start to look around and say, well, maybe I was a little off. Let's adjust it a little bit and keep going. It's stillness, complete stillness. It's abiding as the self, free of attachments, free of anything else. And it, you may have experienced that from time to time. Um, but until you do, you really don't know what it is. But that's why we have the meditation practice. That's why we have the Kriya Yoga philosophy and principles. Because if you follow those things, it will reveal, it will reveal it. it, it, it it's like someone's telling you, um, there's this beautiful utopia where the colors are so vibrant and the, the fruit is, is the perfect amount of sweetness and the temperature is always beautiful and warm and comforting. And they're describing this wonderful experience to you. And your world right now is completely black and white, drab, gray, cold all the time. You have no concept of what they're talking about. But what they can say is, well, here's how you get there. And they give you directions to the place. And of course, as you go, you're still in your drab gray world figuring it out until finally you part these one set of trees and you walk into it and there it is. Well, this is the importance of yoga practice. And this is essentially what's happening um, with the yoga process is that the, the teacher and the, the principles and the books and the traditions, they're just saying, this is how you get there. This is, this is how you remove those obstacles so that you can see it for yourself directly. And you have to see it for yourself directly. And then, of course, you want to run back into the drab gray world and tell everyone about it. And they look at you like, what are you talking about? And then every now and then one will say, wait a minute, what are you talking about? And then you'll try to explain it to them. They'll say, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then you beat your head into the wall for 10, 15 years and you realize, wait a minute, I can't tell them about it, but I can show them how to get there. And then they go and they have the experience. The same thing happens. 
Um, so the Ananda state of bliss, the closest thing that you can get to it if you've not experienced it directly is try to remember a time uh, when everything felt perfectly all right. You didn't have to do anything. You didn't have to be anything. It didn't, it didn't matter what was, what was going on in your experience. It was just fine, which means you didn't have to think about anything either. You didn't have to label anything. You didn't have to define anything. It was just being present and alive and awake and aware. Now, if you can think about a time like that, usually it happens out in nature or maybe listening to a piece of music or um, just a, a random moment of sitting in a cafe and drinking your coffee and you just happen to look over and you see the sunlight glinting off a table in a certain way and you experience that moment. Try to remember that. That's probably as close as you're going to get to an, an understanding of the experience. There's no, oh, over emotionalism about it. There's no hormonal burst. It's just a realization of perfect clarity. Now, the beautiful thing about what I just described is that if you can, if you can imagine what I just said, um, and you can do that in your meditation practice daily, that is enough to start to make it recognizable and easy for you. We act like, this is what we act like very often. We act like meditation. Um, we act like a certain meditation technique is going to give us what we just described. Oh, we just do that meditation technique and that, that's what's going to happen. Well, those meditation techniques are tools, meaning they prime the pump. They get you ready. And, and it might be that through certain breathing exercises, yes, you hit that moment of just pure awareness being. But that's because you have organized your nervous system and your physiology to let the mind take a, a moment off so there's no more def definitions. You don't have to define anything. You don't have to label everything that you see and just experience it. That's beautiful and that's a wonderful thing. But you have to practice abiding there, staying there. You have to make it a conscious thing that you can do, not just because you do a breathing technique, not just because you um, recite a mantra, but because at any moment you know it and you can say, done. I'm experiencing that. You learn how to do it. So one of the ways you learn how to do it is to move into a state that uh, using your own imagination and that retrains yourself to be able to do that. But you have to practice it. It's like many people say, I want to experience love and safety and contentment. Well, if you're in a situation where you're being abused and you're not safe, well, the very first thing you have to do is get yourself out of that situation. Now, let's say you're not in that anymore. Let's say that's something of your past. That's a trauma of your past. And pretty much for the last three years of your life, You've had electricity, you've had clean clothes, you've had good food, um, you've had warmth, you've had friendship, but there's this underlying thread of constant anxiety because you remember what you went through. Well, if you want to experience love and safety and everything around you is already indicating that it's okay to feel that way now, but your, your system is still caught in a loop, well, yes, therapy and counseling is probably going to be the best bet for you to start, especially things like body work, EMDR, 
eye movement desensitization reprocessing or the presence process by Michael Brown. But at some point in time, you have to sit down and say, no, I am safe and imagine a feeling of safety. No, I am at peace. No, it is okay. And you have to do that work. And in the beginning, it is hard work. But the more you get into it, you remember what it felt like where you try to imagine what it would feel like and you, you, you keep letting go of the things that pull you back to stress. Eventually, it becomes easy for you to, okay, no, I can stay here for a little while in this space. And you start to retrain your body and your system to feel that because you're not in the trauma anymore. And, and then you have to start to develop trust because you're going to get traumatized again. We live in a world where that happens. So you have to start remembering, oh, yes, I understand that difficulties are going to come to me again, but I can handle it. I trust that I handled the last one, even though it was stressful. I'm safe now. I can handle the next thing too. And what happens is by doing that every day, imagining every day, you're putting one little uh, pebble in the pond one little pebble in the pond. And that pond is so deep that it might take many, many years, but eventually you put that last pebble in and you realize the pebble, that last pebble has now filled up the pond. And so now you can walk across it. Uh, this is the work that we have to do. Nothing is going to do it for us. No gaze of a guru is going to do it for us permanently. Um, no hundred thousand Repetitions of Kriya Pranayama are going to do it. Those things are help. They help. They are tools. But you still have to do the work to train yourself to move into that state. Uh, so this is, this is why we do what we do in this process. And this is why it's not an easy process. And those people, uh, those of you who are here, who are studying this, who are part of the Kriya Yoga Apprenticeship Program, who are part of this Patreon program, uh, the Journal of a Kriya Yoga Teacher Patreon program, there aren't a whole lot of you. <laughs> Why? Because it takes a lot of work and people don't usually want to do that. Uh, but there are those few who do. And once you do, uh, you do then understand what love is, but you can't talk about it. You can't describe it to someone. It's not something you can give yourself in a shot or through some drugs or through an doing an activity that gives you adrenaline, you recognize it as the natural state of your being. When you have a glimpse of what you call the Ananda state or the blissful state, um, you recognize the difference between, oh, I'm just extremely happy now because I had some caffeine this morning, or I'm just extremely happy now because I've seen this loved one that's been gone for 10 years. Uh, and I know those are hormones. Uh, you, you begin to recognize that there is a, a thread of, of peace and clarity that under, underlies all of that. Um, and that is the, the Ananda state, the bliss state. That's why they say um, the things that, that us sentient beings, in a sense, all crave are being, consciousness, and bliss. Being, consciousness, and bliss. It doesn't say um, everything, what people crave are uh, love, God, and hope. It's being, consciousness, and bliss. So, Final thing I want to share about this particular process, uh, unless there are other questions related to it further down that I haven't seen yet, is uh, the work that you are doing, studying yoga, applying what you learn, that is revealing to you what love is, revealing to you what the self is. Uh, yoga 
removes the obstacles, removes the afflictions to abiding as the self, which in a sense means abiding as love. You are a personality at the moment, meaning you, you identify with the personality. <clears throat> if you are not feeling peace or you are not feeling love, and there are no external things that you can do to adjust that, meaning you're not, if you're not being abused, if you're being abused, you need to correct that. If you're around dramatic people who always drag you down, you need to correct that. If you don't exercise and all you eat is sugar all day and that messes up your hormones and your ability to have a healthy nervous system, you need to correct that. But let's say you are doing everything well, and it's not complicated, just have healthy relationships around you or be alone. That's better than having unhealthy relationships. Um, you're eating well, you're exercising regularly, you're, you're sleeping as well as possible, given that in our human bodies, we all have genetic predisposition, so no one's gonna be perfect, but you're doing the best you can. And there's no people coming to collect debt on your house or um, these kinds of things, but you have this, this constant level of dissatisfaction or anxiety. Well, what you have to do, the only thing that's gonna make that different is probably practicing uh, one of the yamas and niyamas, such as contentment, where you decide, no, for this period of time, I'm gonna to choose to feel, to imagine at the exclusion of all else, contentment for its own sake, for its own sake. And that might be the practice that you have to do, barring getting therapy, barring working with someone to deal with serious traumas that you might have endured. Um, but you have to do that until it becomes natural, until that becomes your personality, until that becomes the underlying current of your experience, as opposed to that background static of anxiety or depression, which most people carry around. That is the work. And then the meditation process, the contemplations, uh, the pranayamas, the study of uh, sacred scriptures, all of that will synergistically support the process. And then you'll have greater understanding, greater realization, which will help you experience a state of contentment, which will help you experience a state of peace. It all goes together. And so the work of your life is um, love. I recently wrote a little tune on my hurdy-gurdy. Uh, I was um, sitting up in my bedroom and my bedroom kind of looks to the yard where there's a little sloping hill and a beautiful maple tree. And it was, it's icy and cold out there at the moment. I was looking at it and I just heard uh, that one of my friends um, that I knew from Asheville, who was uh, probably a, a beast of an athlete. I mean, as far as mountain biking goes, running, doing tough mutters. I mean, she was, is even now can run circles around me and many people I know. And she's been going through a difficult situation where she has to get a bone marrow transplant and some of the chemotherapy wasn't working so well. And she went back to get another um, biopsy of her bone marrow to see if she could get a transplant now, which again is no certain cure. And she still wasn't in the right place. And she's been doing this for about a year. And I, I know what that's like to go through that experience or I've, I've, I've walked beside someone who's had to go through that experience. And I thought about that. 
And it doesn't seem fair for someone like that, right? I mean, she's probably more fit than all of us combined. Even even in her cancer diagnosis, I keep uh, hearing about her going on skiing and doing mountain mountain biking uh, uh, adventures. She's getting a little worn down now, but she was doing pretty good. Um, and then I don't know if any of you have seen the, the show, The Magicians. Uh, it's on Netflix. It's an okay show if you can tolerate the the 20 something whining and complaining about everything the characters do. But there was one episode in particular where the, uh, the characters had to go on a quest and the quest was to create a mosaic of tiles and no one had been, been able to solve this quest. The quest was to using these tiles, create a mosaic that reflected the beauty of all life. And they get there and think, yeah, sure, we're just going to pull it off. And what happens is they start and it's so much frustration. Nothing ever seems to work. And they end up living their entire life from 20 years old until one of them dies of old age. And the other one, he ends up having a child with a woman and she passes and there's suffering, but there's the joy of success. And there's the time they spent together and the love that they share. And after the, the, the first one dies, then the second one finds the final tile that puts it all together. And it was the, it was called the mosaic and it was aiming to show at least what I took from it, that we're looking for the beauty of all life. And what this show illustrated was the beauty of all life is living life, living through the pain, celebrating the joys, um, being together, being apart, uh, going all, all of it together. So anyway, I saw the snow. I, I remembered my friend. I, I thought about this show that I, that I watched. And so I wrote this uh, piece, uh, simple piece that I called the mosaic. Um, and it's, it's through those experiences that, that music comes about, that love comes about. And it is the practice of yoga, which allows us to live this life in that way. Being able to be crushed, being able to be lifted up, being able to be courageous, being able to undertake our personal quests, whether they succeed or whether they fail, because this individual thought that he had failed because they didn't complete the, the quest before his friend died. But of course, this is a show called The Magicians. So as soon as um, they completed the tile, they went back in time <laughs> to their earlier selves. Uh, and then later on, they, they remembered that they lived a whole life together. Uh, 60, 70 years together, and it, it completely changed the way they viewed life. Uh, their character development in, increased and they became a little less whiny. <laughs> <clears throat> so um, anyway, this is uh, hopefully helpful as, as best as possible in a description of uh, what is Ananda, what is bliss? Why isn't love talked about in the Yoga Sutras? Well, because you can't talk about it. You can only do what we've discussed. This episode of the Kriya Yoga podcast was made possible by donations from Kriya Yoga apprenticeship students and supporters of our Patreon community at www.patreon.com forward slash Kriya Yoga.